I had got to know a man who we'll just call John. Uh, John was a higher up in the White House, but he was humble, he was gracious and kind. And Lisa and I had just started dating, and uh, John offered to take us on a West Wing tour uh, of the White House. And so John not only took us on a West Wing tour where we saw the Rose Garden and the Oval Office and other rooms on one of our very first dates, uh, but he also took us into one of the most magnificent buildings in, in D.C., I think, the old executive office building. Uh, among other things, we were able to see the East and West Rotundas, the Indian Treaty Room. Uh, it was amazing. John was spending that evening with us, uh, away from his family, out of his kindness and generosity. I don't think John was a Christian, but he was using the position the Lord placed him in to bless a couple of college kids who were growing in love. Now, that's a rather mundane example of someone in a prestigious position showing kindness and blessing Lisa and me, but the text that we're looking at together in the Bible this morning is far more profound. Uh, in our text this morning, we return to the life of Abraham, and he, as the special and chosen servant of God, uh, he leverages his relationship with the Lord to bless and rescue his nephew Lot from certain danger the destruction of the city of Sodom. This episode in Genesis 18 reminds us that we need someone who can intercede before God the Father for us. Otherwise, we would face eternal and certain destruction. And that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my hope this morning that as we to God the Father, to Genesis chapter 18, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find the passage beginning on page 12. Let's remember what we've learned from the book of Genesis so far. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we've learned that God created everything and everyone in this world. He made man and woman in his own image. He made them good. He set them in a beautiful garden, and he gave them a few instructions. Sadly, they rebelled against God's good command. They sinned against him. They took and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that plunged all of humanity into sin and death and condemnation. And God promised that even in the face of their rebellion, he would send a redeemer. He would send a son who would come and crush the head of the serpent, rescue his people from sin and death. And as the book of Genesis has unfolded, the focus of that promise of sending a son has been narrowed to Abraham and his family, his offspring. Abraham, a seed of Abraham, a son down the line would bring God's people back under God's rule and under his blessing. And so we are waiting to see how this unfolds. God made this promise to first give Abraham a son back in Genesis 12. And in our last study, in Genesis chapter 17, God gave Abraham a sign of his covenant, a sign of circumcision to go along with this promise. And that occurred when he was 99. And his princess, Abraham's princess, Sarah, uh, though she has aged beautifully, uh, she's nearly 90. And our passage this morning in Genesis 18 is composed of two scenes. In the first scene, Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 15, the Lord once again appears to Abraham, and he reassures him and Sarah of his promise that he's going to give them together a son. In the second scene, in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33, the Lord announces to Abraham his plans for Sodom's judgment. With this announcement, Abraham appeals to the Lord to show mercy upon the righteous who live in the city. So what do these two scenes teach us? 
Well, it teaches us that those who possess the saving, God's saving promises and enjoy God's sovereign presence should seek that privilege for others. You see, what the life of Abraham teaches us in Genesis 18 is that God's presence with his people and his people, his people should make them intercessors for other people. Let me put it to you this way, Christian. Jesus has saved you in part so that you might plead for the salvation of others. Beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. You have been pardoned to plead for the pardon of others. We're going to unpack Genesis 18 under two main headings. I believe you can find an outline provided there in your bulletin. Here's point number one. God's presence proves he will keep his promises. And point number two, God's promises should lead you to plead for God's pardon. Let's begin with our first point. God's presence proves he will keep his promises. Follow along as I read Genesis 18, verses 1 to 15. Genesis 18, verses 1 to 15. And the Lord Yahweh appeared to him, that's Abraham, the Lord Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran to the, from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, He is a fine flower. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the before them. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? Surely return to you about this time next month. The Lord Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah herself laughed. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Lord Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard that the Lord and Sarah shall? Point in time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Well, in this scene, the Lord, he appears to Abraham through three servants. And Abraham is lavishly hospitable toward them. As they once again communicate the Lord's purposes of giving Abraham and Sarah a son, a promised son. Here we see the Lord is communing with his people in his eating with them. And that purpose is to communicate, to powerfully, presently communicate his promises to them. This demonstrates Abraham's special relationship with the Lord, his privileged relationship with the Lord. Notice how verse 1 begins. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now Moses, the author of Genesis, he unmistakably announces the Lord by this point is a little bit familiar with the Lord appearing to him. 
And each time the Lord has appeared to Abraham, it has been for the purpose of dramatically reassuring to Abraham God's promises of giving him an offspring. These appearances of the Lord, these appearances are uniquely tied to God personally communicating his redemptive purposes. So in the Bible, God doesn't just appear to his people for kind of a casual conversation. Rather, God appears to his people to tangibly communicate what he intends to do. When God shows up, it is a serious conversation. It is a privileged conversation. It is an honor that the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth might descend to his creatures and communicate his purpose of grace to them. So this displays Abraham's special relationship with the Lord. And we're told, as soon as we're told that the Lord appears, we're told that there are three men standing at the door. So which is it? Has the Lord appeared? Or are there three men standing at the door? Yes. And more. In fact, if you read into chapter 19 and verse 1, you'll see that two of these men are angels of the Lord. Which means that one of these men is the Lord himself. That has to be given the case given what we read in verse 1 but also because of the Lord speaking in verse 10 and in verse 13, right there in the midst of this conversation. Now, we know from other passages of Scripture, like Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, that no one can look upon the Lord and live. So the Lord is clearly accommodating his personal presence to Abraham in the form of a man. The Lord is concealing the fullness of his glory for the purpose of personally communicating to Abraham his presence and his promises. And Abraham understands this. He's, he's eager to serve the Lord. He's totally submissive. You see there in verse 2, he runs to the tent door and shows them in reverence by bowing to the earth. Now, the idea of bowing in the Old Testament is often tied to worship. Abraham even begs these men to allow him to refresh them. Look at how earnest his language is there in verse 3. Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. I love that phrase. It reminds me of that old great hymn, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. I wonder if you feel like God has visited others, that he's made himself known to them, but he feels somewhat distant to you. Maybe you make this your plea. Do not pass by your servant. Now, friend, the Lord is, is probably not going to appear to you as he did here to Abraham. Uh, this is a unique, unrepeatable, redemptive, historical moment, appearance. And God is us to desire the stated, his redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ. But it's right for us to desire this, the sovereign and saving presence of his spirit in our hearts. So let us, Abraham, pass you by either. You see there? Twice he calls himself a servant in verse 3 and verse 5. This is how we should think of ourselves before the Lord. We are his servants. We should be ready to do his will. Abraham, his humility, leads to hospitality. Did you know that that's what you needed in order to be hospitable? You just need some humility. You simply need to be humble. You need to be willing to lay aside your interests as first and most important and start looking around to others to see their needs and their interests and considering them. Abraham may have known that he was entertaining the Lord, but... Uh, the writer to the Hebrews suggests that he didn't know he was entertaining angels. That's why we read from Hebrews chapter 13 uh, earlier in the service. We read Hebrews 13 too, which said, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, Abraham, he does the classic undersell, doesn't he? Right? He, he promises bread and water, but then he delivers 
with cakes and a young calf. It's a feast fit for a king, and appropriately so. He recognized the privilege of hosting the great king of heaven and earth. And he leads his household to share in this privilege. Do you notice that? He invites his wife in. He invites his servant in into this privilege of being hospitable. I think faithful husbands and fathers will recognize that they are to lead their households to be hospitable. While Abraham asks Sarah to make some cakes, he doesn't allow every detail to fall upon her, nor every duty. He is actually intimately involved in sharing the load. The most difficult preparation he gives to that young man. And if he didn't have a young man around to prepare this calf, then he would have needed to prepare the calf for himself. So brothers, let me encourage you to lead your families to be hospitable. It takes place in your home and you need to be involved. Don't leave all of it to your wife. Don't even leave most of it to your wife. Help clean, help cook, bring your kids into serving and patiently teach them that it's an honor to have guests in your home. What are you, see the end of verse 8? See what Abraham does there? He stands by them under the tree while they ate. Not only was Abraham ready to serve, that's his eating. Eating a meal in the Bible expresses trust and fellowship and communion. The Lord is communing uh, with Abraham here. He's confirming his relationship. And this shows that Abraham has this special privileged relationship with the Lord. And believers in Jesus have a similar privilege when we partake of the Lord's Supper, right? In that wonderful meal, we express our faith in the Lord. But do you remember how Jesus instituted that meal? Remember what he did, how he got that bowl of water? That's what Abraham did here. Abraham, he got this bowl of water for them to wash their feet. But what did Jesus do? Even greater than Abraham, even more of a servant than Abraham, Jesus himself washed their feet and welcomed them. He was the chief servant of all. Jesus served, and we should learn from our Savior. Not only that, Jesus ate that meal with them, honoring them with his very presence, expressing his friendship and his fellowship with them. And he does the same with us as we partake of his supper. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. Our celebration of this meal helps us to look back upon our Savior's service, upon his dying love. And it also helps us to look forward to his return. We will celebrate that marriage supper of the Lamb. We have fellowship with God, a, a privilege for us. That's the purpose of the Lord's Supper, to further our communion and our fellowship with the Lord. But what's the purpose of this meal here in Genesis 18? Well, verses 9 to 15 tell us, The Lord appeared to Abraham because he wanted him to know that the promised child would come through Sarah. Throughout the course of Genesis, there's been great concern that this would happen. They even tried to bring the promised child through Hagar. And then later, Abraham would circle back and say, Oh, Lord, I know that Sarah's not having a child, basically, but why, why don't you take Ishmael? The Lord wants to make sure that Abraham knows that this child is going to come through Sarah. The Lord, he turns up to their home to drive the point home that, yes, this old man and this old woman, the patriarch and his princess, they would be the parents of this child of promise. And we get this, right? When you want to tell a loved one or a friend something important, you do it in person, right? You don't send them a text or an email or leave a voicemail or direct message them on Facebook or at them on Twitter or whatever the protocols are these days. No, when you want to tell someone something important, you turn up in person and you say it face to face. Your practice of interacting with us, say this again, to encourage you to take this to heart in your practice of interacting with others 
in the days ahead. When you want to tell a loved one or a friend something important, you do it face to face. That's why the Lord is appearing to Abraham. He has given Abraham a covenant sign to show that he's going to be faithful to his promise to give him a son. And now he gives him his covenant presence right there. Powerfully communicates that his promises are going to come to pass. Beloved, we need to recognize this about our God. He gives us his presence as a reassurance and a guarantee that his promises to us will come to pass. He will save us. He will bring us safely home. How do we know? Remember what we read earlier from Hebrews? He will never leave you or forsake you. And again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, we are told that God's people are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives reassures us and reminds us that God is going to be faithful to bring us all the way home. Our possession of the Spirit is a guarantee. Personal presence was not just for Abraham, God's personal presence with us. And God's personal presence was not just for Abraham, but notice it was for Sarah too. That's why in verse 9, the question is asked, where is Sarah, your wife? If I may use a little sanctified imagination, I wouldn't be surprised if at that point the Lord raised his voice in order to make the point to Sarah, make sure that Sarah heard what was going on next. Have you ever done that? You're in a conversation in one room, you know somebody else in the other room, but you want them to hear a certain part of it, so you just say the thing that a little bit louder. Well, maybe that's what's going on here. Whatever the case may be, Sarah hears the promise directly from the Lord. But Sarah doubts, doesn't she? And it's hard to blame her. She laughs. You see there in verse 12, she looks at the facts of the case. Fact number one, Sarah is worn out, which means that she is beyond the natural ability to conceive. Fact number two that she's looking at, Abraham, who she calls her Lord, is old. I mean, the guy's nearly 100. Fact number three, it has been some time since Sarah has had the pleasure of intimacy. And will she have the pleasure of a child? These three facts cause her faith to falter for a moment. And the Lord, he immediately confronts the issue, doesn't he? He confronts actually the heart of the issue. Faltering faith calls the Lord's sovereign power and care into question. Faltering faith suggests the Lord Almighty is not so mighty, or at least he's not mighty enough to address this issue. He's not mighty enough to overcome an apparently dead womb. Do you realize that that's the state of Sarah's womb? Her body's ability to give life has died. But the Lord loves to raise the dead and give life. And that is just what he's about to do with Sarah's womb. And because, as the Lord says there in verse 14, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Dear Christian, believe that truth. It comes from the Lord's very lips. It's something that he wants you to hear and heed and believe and live in light of. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He is able to do all he promises. When hopes are dead, never count out the living God. Believe him. Believe his promises. What he has said he will do. And this is why the Lord confronts Sarah's laughter there in verses 13 to 15. And do you know what the scripture says about Sarah with respect to God's promises here? Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past. Do you hear what the... Since she considered him faithful, 
who had promised. Do you hear what the writer of the Hebrews says about Sarah? She believed God's promise of giving her a child, even though she was past eight. He used to re- the Lord's gentle confrontation was the means he used to revive her faltering faith. Let me say that again. The Lord's gentle confrontation was the means that he, you know, but you did laugh, her faltering faith. In verse 14, when the Lord said, no, but you did laugh, he was saying, Sarah, my dear daughter, you're not believing in my power. Believe, I will give you a child. Sometimes the Lord confronts us in our unbelief and with our unbelief. And in doing so, he's inviting us to believe in him. Now, it's often hard for us to kind of accept this idea, but God can use confrontation to make our faith as solid as concrete. Sometimes we need to gently confront, gently confronted in our unbelief. Sometimes we need to gently confront one another in our unbelief and with our unbelief. And rather than being deeply offended, we need to be thankful that a brother or sister in the Lord has loving confronted us. And we should respond. We should admit the truth and say, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We should be on guard against doing what Sarah did here. There's no way around it. She lied when she said, I did not laugh. She became defensive. She added deceit to disbelief. Too often when confronted with sin, we are tempted to cover it up, excuse it away, deny it. A mark of grace in the soul is the free admission of guilt. You're right, I I was wrong. I I did sin in that way. And the, the only way you can freely admit guilt is if you are resting upon the free forgiveness of God. Right? God promises that Jesus pays for all of our sin. And that should encourage us and enable us to confess our sin. When confronted with sin, the Lord's not trying to harm you. You need to remember that. He's trying to help you. When confronted with unbelief, the Lord is inviting you on to belief. God is for you. He's not against you. He confronts you. He corrects you to comfort you because he loves you and is committed to you and committed to conforming you to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you see what Genesis 18 verses 1 to 15 teaches us? It teaches us that God's presence proves he will keep his promises. He turns up there to make sure Abraham and Sarah know beyond the shadow of a doubt he's going to keep his promise. It teaches us that Abraham and ate there the blessed the Lord. The Lord appeared with him or to him and ate there. The blessing of God's presence, the blessing of an intimate relationship with God should lead the people of God to seek blessed promises and presence in Genesis 18. Abraham, the man blessed by God's promises and presence, seeks the blessing of God's pardon for others. Let's turn then and consider our second point. God's promises should lead you to plead for pardon. Genesis 18 verses 16 to 33 contains two shares it with Abraham. And then the Lord announces what he is about to do. And shares it with Abraham. And then in the second, Abraham appeals to the Lord, asking him to pardon the people of Sodom. Let's for now. Genesis 18, verses 16 to 21. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely be for I have chosen him and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord Yahweh said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Well, in these verses, there is a departure, a divine deliberation, and a disclosure. In verse 16, we see there's a departure. The men, the Lord and the two angels who had come to visit Abraham depart, and they start heading toward Sodom. And notice the language of looking down toward Sodom. The directional language of looking down is deliberate. In fact, the directional language turns up again there in verse 21. Do you see it there? The Lord says, I will go down to see. Those first receiving the book of Genesis, the people of Israel standing on Mount Sinai, would have been immediately reminded of the, the tower that they were building. In Genesis 11, there the Lord went down to see the tower that they were building. The building that, of that tower was an act of rebellion against the living God. And something similar is going on at Sodom. There's a rebellion. The Lord went down to see the tower and judge the people. And now he's going to go down to Sodom. The looking down and the going down are expressions of imminent judgment coming down. Judgment is about to come down on the people of Sodom for the wickedness that they're perpetrating. That's what we're going to discover really in Genesis 19. But before moving directly to judgment, we're introduced to this divine deliberation there in verses 17 and 19. These verses are astounding. As we, as we read them, they appear to us as the Lord kind of wrestling with this decision. But in truth, our God is not an indecisive God. It's not as though he doesn't know what he wants to do. He knows exactly what he wants to do. Instead, what we're getting here is accommodated language, language that we can understand so that we know why the Lord is going to disclose his plans to a mere mortal such as Abraham. Do you see the reasons listed there in these verses? God is going to share his plan of Sodom's judgment because... Abraham is the one through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 18. This is language hearkening back all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is the one through whom all the nations blessed by God to really be a blessing to others. Since Abraham is the one through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, God decides, decides to make him aware of the coming judgment on Sod of Sodom. We'll see that especially clearly toward the close of the chapter. Verse 19, now him. And the statements that follow that phrase there are just another way of expressing that Abraham is chosen to enter into a covenant with him. He's deciding not to keep his purposes and plans from Abraham. The nature of this relationship means that God's going to open his heart to Abraham. He's going to reveal these things to him. Though it's not a perfect analogy, think of it like marriage. I do not keep things from my wife. I share my heart with her. Right? You do not conceal your plans and purposes from those you have entered into a covenant relationship with. And that's what the Lord is doing with Abraham. And this is especially considerate of the Lord because Abraham's nephew Lot is in that city. If the Lord destroyed that city without disclosing that to Abraham, that could possibly tempt Abraham to distrust the Lord so that Abraham might plead. But the Lord graciously gives it so that Abraham might plead for grace. 
Think about how all of this is pointing forward to Jesus. Our intimate relationship. The eternal Son. God didn't he love God the Father from all eternity? Wasn't the eternal Son, God's especially chosen one, through whom God would mediate his saving blessings to the nations? Go and read through Isaiah's servant songs. And that's exactly what you will discover about the Messiah. And didn't the Father and the Son agree in eternity past upon a plan to rescue his people from certain coming judgment? What is occurring here with Abraham is foreshadowing what will occur in an even greater way through Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 20 and 21, we've moved from a divine deliberation to a divine disclosure. Notice how verse 20 opens. Then the Lord said, right, the Lord is telling Abraham his plans and purposes. He's telling Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and that their sin is very grave. Now, if the Lord tarries and allows us to gather together again the next Lord's Day, then we're going to see just what that very grave sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. It was the lust for same-sex intercourse. In society, this was simply referred to as sodomy in years gone by. That is the sin that the Lord calls very grave. And one of the challenging issues of our time is to take God's perspective on sin. To see it as well as actually a very grave sin. But here's the sobering reality. Just as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground to the Lord for justice from the murder of his brother Cain, so the very grave sin of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah is crying out to the Lord for justice. Their sin is demanding justice from God. The homosexual lust that engulfed that city and even our current culture is wicked in the sight of God and deserving of his just wrath. The Lord tells Abraham that he is going to go down to Sodom, just like he was going to go down to the Tower of Babel, and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to him. Now, it's not as though the Lord doesn't know what's going on at Sodom. Abraham to everything. The purpose of this revelation is to provoke Abraham to plead for pardon for the people of Sodom. You've known this kind of thing in your life, right? A, a remark that's looking for a response, right? So your wife says to you, well, honey, you are filling out those jeans nicely today. Yes, dear, I do need to go back to the gym. Thank you for that, right? Sometimes that hasn't happened in my marriage, to be clear. Um, uh, but, but you understand, there's sometimes we make remarks in life that are looking for a response, something like that is occurring here, though more sober and serious. The reason the Lord reveals his purposes and plans to Abraham, reminding him of his special relationship with him through his presence, is so that he would plead for the people of Sodom. And the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, those who were first receiving this book, would have known something similar. Think back to Exodus chapter 32. Right? Moses, he is up on the mountain receiving instruction from God. And what happens down there on the ground? They decide to fashion a golden calf. And what happens? The Lord says to, Ab uh, to Moses, I'm going to go down there and destroy this people. What's the point of the Lord revealing that to Moses? Provokes Ab uh, Moses' response. So he pleads and intercedes. And in our lives, too, here the Lord is provoking Abraham to pray then you ought to, that ought to lead you to pray that many would come 
to know the pardon of Jesus. The Lord has told us of his blessings upon others to pray for their pardon. The Lord has blessed Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham should not just be concerned with his own welfare or the welfare of his own family. And this is something that the people of Israel would need to learn as well. They were to be a missionary people. They had to be concerned for the nations around them. They had the privilege of the promises of God and the presence of God. And because of that, they should be inviting others to know the pardon of God. That's why Abraham begins to plead for Sodom and appeal for the Lord to show mercy in verses 22 to, to 33. Follow along as I read those verses now. Genesis 18, beginning there in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep weep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord Yahweh said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, Lord, and then he said, oh, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. In these verses, two servants depart while Abraham and the Lord discuss the future of the city. After the Lord agrees to Abraham's final appeal for pardon, the patriarch returns home. You see there, verse 22 sees the two men who we know to be angels from uh, chapter 19, verse 1. You see that there? The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. They make their way toward the city. And this affords Abraham and the Lord an opportunity to discuss the destiny of the city. Notice that Abraham is described as standing still before the Lord. Uh, this phrase of standing still before the Lord is used throughout the Old Testament. And as one scholar put it, to stand before the Lord means to worship him, to enter his presence. He is but dust. Uttered kind of as 27. Actually, several times throughout these verses, Abraham uttered kind of as he speaks, he's very tentative. As he speaks to the Lord, his phrases express his humility. There in verse 30 and 32, he asked the Lord not to be angry with him. And then in verse 31, he, he recognizes he's being very forward with the Lord. Abraham stands there as one desperately, humbly, and yet boldly pleading for the pardon of the wicked city. 
There in verse 23, you see the language of the Lord, that Abraham drew near to the Lord. The signal is that Abraham is beginning to pray. That's the language of prayer. That's what you do in prayer. You draw near to the Lord to, to talk to him, to share with him what is on your heart. The Lord has shared with Abraham what is on his heart, and now Abraham shares with the Lord what is on his heart. As he prays in verses 23 to 25, his central concern is that God would not indiscriminately sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Abraham does not view that as just. Twice he says there in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing. Far be it from you. It's kind of Abraham's way of saying, I just cannot believe that you would do such a thing. It would be contrary towards your justice. Abraham knows and believes that God is perfectly righteous and just. And Abraham is praying your character. Do not judge the righteous along with the wicked. Be true to your character. We need to understand here that the righteous are not those who are innocent. They're not those who are free of sin. They're not those who are perfect. As we're going to see, Lot and his daughters, those who actually escape from the city, are not innocent. Uh, they are not free from sin. And they are certainly not perfect. No, what righteous means here, and what it often means in the Old Testament and the New, is those who are the people of God. Those who belong to God, who are especially connected by covenant to the Lord and to the covenant head. So Lot and his daughters are considered righteous by virtue of their relationship to Abraham and their faith in Abraham's God. Similarly, Christians are righteous by virtue of our connection to our covenant head, the one who is actually perfectly righteous, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not righteous because of anything that we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood and his righteousness lived for us. Now, God does have a history of preserving the righteous, his suffer along with the wicked in the court of judgments. Uh, the Lord does allow his people to suffer along with the wicked in the course of natural disasters. What happens in Sodom and Gomorrah is not a natural disaster. It is the Lord's purposeful activity to judge those cities. But the Lord does have a history of preserving the righteous, his people, from judicial judgments. So think of Noah and the worldwide flood. Right? The Lord preserved him and his family in the ark. He plucked them out of that act of judgment. Uh, think of Rahab and the conquest of Jericho. The Lord preserved her and her household after that battle. They were saved and rescued. Sometimes God plucks the righteous out of places destined for his judicial judgment. And as Abraham pleads, he has his nephew Lot in mind. This is actually the second time that Abraham has sought to bless Sodom and his nephew Lot, uh, thus rescuing them from danger. So back in Genesis chapter 14, when a bunch of kings laid siege to Sodom, they captured Lot as well and took him hostage. And so Abraham, he got his men together and he went and waged war on these kings, rescuing his nephew Lot and returning the possessions to Sodom. Abraham, by asking about this, is part of the righteous persons that live in that city. And perhaps Abraham, by asking about this number of people, the righteous persons there, he's hoping that Lot has had a leavening influence in the city. Lot is part of the righteous persons there. After all, Peter declares, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that Lot was righteous. In view of this text, Peter goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. But notice carefully that Abraham is not merely asking for the Lord to rescue Lot. 
He's asking Yahweh to rescue the entire city if there are but ten righteous persons found in the city. He's praying for the whole city. Verse 23, will you sweep away the place? Verse 28, will you destroy the whole city? And the answer comes from the Lord again and again. I won't destroy the whole city if 50 are found there, if 45 are found there, not if 30 are found there, not if 20 are found there. I will not destroy the whole city if 10 are found there. God agrees to preserve the city for the sake of the righteous if 10 of them are found there. And it kind of sets you to wonder if even today, maybe sometimes God delays his judgment upon wicked cities and nations because of the presence of the righteous among them. And he means to leave them there to leaven that society with his righteousness. Whatever the case may be, why does Abraham stop at 10, right? I mean, he's on a roll, and uh, we know what happens to Sodom. There aren't even 10 righteous persons in the city. So in the end, it's destroyed. Why does Abraham stop at 10? He stops at 10 because he sees that God will not answer his chief concern, that the righteous will not be judged along with the wicked. That was his principal concern there in verses 23 to 25. Abraham stops at 10 because he's convinced that God will do what is just. And then he leaves the judgment into God's hands. And he returns to his home, as we see there in verse 33. The Lord will do what is right. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. The Lord has persuaded Abraham. And he preserves his people. Lot and his two daughters escape. They were the only righteous persons who were in that city. Still, the Lord was faithful to his word that they weren't all that righteous. Uh, still, the Lord was faithful to his word and he did not punish them along with the wicked. Abraham's pleading was effective. And what you need to know is that someone greater than Abraham has come to plead for our pardon. And his plea for our pardon is effective. Someone whose plea was heard by God. Someone who has an eternal and intimate relationship with God the Father. Someone who is chosen and precious. Someone who, unlike Abraham, was himself without sin and was perfectly righteous. Someone whose plea rescues not a mere three people from a single city, but millions of people all over the globe. Someone greater than Abraham has come, and his plea rescues the wicked, not from a temporal judgment, but from an eternal judgment. Friends, that someone is the offspring of Abraham, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you need to know is that we all deserve to face God's judgment and wrath. Not just a temporal judgment in the here and now, but an eternal sulfur and brimstone. And one that Sodom actually pointed forward to. God rained down sulfur and brimstone and fire, displaying his wrath. And the scriptures use that example as an example of what is deserved on an eternal measure and for all eternity. Because God is holy, just, and good, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so we all deserve to face that eternal wrath of God forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the, right, the life of perfect righteousness. He walked in obedience. He lived according to God's law. And he laid down his life on the cross for sinners like you and me. He died in our place, bearing the eternal wrath of God 
What happened on the cross is that the eternal judgment of God was brought forward in time and laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And now Jesus has been raised in the grave three days after his death. He's ascended to the throne in heaven and he pleads for his people. And do you know what he pleads? He pleads his righteous life. He says, Father, for my righteousness, spare them. Account my righteousness to their account. Father, for my death, bearing the eternal punishment on the cross, account it to me and let them be spared of that eternal judgment. Father, see my resurrection from the grave as victory over sin and death and let them have that victory too. And the Father will not say no to his son. He will spare you if you turn from your sins and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, come to Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Jesus paid it all. And so give to him everything. You owe everything to him, your whole life and all of your faith, believing that he rescues you from the eternal wrath of God. And do you know what the scriptures say? The scriptures say that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Jesus. And Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. He is interceding for his people even right now. Friend, if you want Jesus to intercede for you, come to him in repentance and faith. Believe upon him. And if you want to know more about what it means to have Jesus plead for you and pardon you, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a family member or friend that you came here with this morning. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Dear Christian, what you need to know now is the Lord continues to intercede for you. Be encouraged that even now, as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this life, the Lord Jesus is praying for you. He loves you. He's going to make sure that you make it safely home. And Jesus, as we read earlier, is the same yesterday day and forever. And every day he gives you life and breath. He is going to plead for you. You're going to escape the judgment that is to come because Jesus pleads for you. And as we conclude, I want to come back to what I said at the beginning. Having a privileged position of an intimate relationship with the Lord, having been pardoned by God, should lead you, like it led Abraham, to plead with God for the pardon of others. Christian, Jesus has saved you in part so that you might plead for the salvation of others. He is glorified in this. Beloved, can I urge you to pray big and plead big? God has brought you into a privileged relationship and he has invited you to pray to him. He has made known through the scriptures that the final judgment is coming. That revelation ought to provoke you to pray. It's a revelation looking for a response. And you ought to pray for the lost around you. As we see here in Genesis, God works through prayer. And he has revealed that he has decreed and determined his sovereign will cannot be moved or changed. And so he has also revealed that he works out his sovereign will through the faithful prayers of his people. The scriptures teach us this in James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God not only hears the prayers of his people, he responds to the prayers of his people and answers the prayers of the people. You have been pardoned in part to plead for the pardon of others. 
So pray for God to pardon your friends. Pray for God to pardon your family members, your children, your co-workers, your classmates, and your neighbors. Pray for God to pardon the neighborhood of the people living around this church building. Pray that we would be a righteous leavening influence in this community. Pray that God would use us to help many escape the wrath that is to come. We know the privilege of pardon in part to for the sake of that righteous one, would you save them? And you might think to yourself, Abraham's prayer only rescued three people. But beloved, Abraham's prayer rescued three people. Imagine praying, and the Lord used your prayers to rescue three people from hell. They are three people worth praying for. And pray for more. What an honor it would be for the Lord to use your prayers to rescue sinners from eternal death. So pray big and plead big. Jesus has pled for us. And now in light of his effective pleas, let us plead for the salvation of others so that our Savior's power and glory might be displayed. In fact, let's do that now together in prayer. Let's pray together.